remind you, they came for the trade unionists. Well, I want you to know I'm a trade unionist. They came for socialists, and I want you to know I was a socialist. They came for Jews, and I was a Jew. And they're coming for Muslims, and we're all Muslims. It's interesting. The, the road from the civil rights movement didn't lead to the election of Barack Obama. The road to Barack Obama, Obama came out of the Democratic Party and the left and a group of young people and young black people who wanted to see something new. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Today, part four of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016, marking the half-century anniversary of the call for black power in this country in 1966. Today, a wide-ranging conversation with educator and activist Tom Porter about his view of black power in D.C., from Malcolm X to Barack Obama. Before we get to that interview, a few headlines from D.C. activism this week. Hundreds joined in a march and rally Wednesday against Islamophobia, especially that promoted by the incoming Trump administration. Chantel James has more. On the winter solstice, the longest night of the year, protesters of all faiths gathered outside the headquarters of the Clarion Project, an organization that produces and promotes Islamophobic and anti-Muslim films and has been named a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The protesters were organized under the banner of Jewish Voices for Peace, a group which has been behind several campaigns against Islamophobia. Speakers focused on the effort to have the Clarion Project evicted by Tishman Speyer, who owns the building. After chanting and holding up signs in front of 1717 Pennsylvania Avenue, the location of Clarion's headquarters, the protesters marched just one and a half blocks to the White House, chanting such slogans as, Don't give in to racist fear. Muslim friends are welcome here. At the White House, faith leaders from all traditions spoke against the Muslim registry and against the Islamophobia of incoming President Trump, urging interfaith solidarity at this time. Imam Jahari speaks to the crowd about coping during these times of Trump's election. An unlikely suspect has brought us together. But now that we've been brought together, we're not going to be broken apart. Are you with me tonight? Yeah. I'll say yeah. yeah. If you all say yeah. yeah. By the way, you know there's a new industry going around. There are some people who are profiting off of our division. You know, we've been divided for too long. So we've allowed Islamophobia to creep in after Anti-Semitism was already pushed out. We're not going back. Black Lives Matter got us to one place. Our resistance has gotten us only so far. Right now, you and I need to recommit ourselves to an ongoing act of public resistance against tyranny. I want to remind you, 
They came for the trade unionists. Well, I want you to know I'm a trade unionist. They came for socialists. And I want you to know I was a socialist. They came for Jews and I was a Jew. And they're coming for Muslims and we're all Muslim. They were coming for truth and all of us were truth tellers. From the White House, this is Chantal James signing off for On the Ground. The Washington Peace Center, Code Pink, Women for Peace, and the National Lawyers Guild were among some of the other organizations participating in the action. A coalition, the People's Fairness Coalition, also held an overnight vigil on Tuesday in D.C. to honor people who are homeless and to remember homeless people who have died. They call for an end to life and death on the street. Participants joined in a candlelight procession to Freedom Plaza, where some slept overnight before attending a homeless memorial service on Wednesday morning. There will be a national watch night service here in D.C., presided over by the Reverend William Barber and repairers of the breach. That will be December 31st at 10 p.m. at Metropolitan AME Church, 1518 M Street in downtown D.C. In culture and media, new movies opening this weekend include Fences, the screen adaptation of the August Wilson play. In D.C. today is the final day that Busy Bee presents more than 60 pop-up shops at the Shiloh Family Life Center, 9th and P Streets in Northwest D.C. And a series of Kwanzaa programs are being presented around the city starting on Monday. You can access a complete list of programs on the Facebook page for D.C. Kwanzaa Planning Committee. The Economic Empowerment Organization Appeal is also sponsoring a Kwanzaa Black Business Support Initiative encouraging patronizing of selected black businesses during the holiday for a chance to win a prize. More information is at appealinc.org forward slash events. And those are some of our headlines and happenings. When we come back, part four of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016, with Tom Porter. Stay with us. Blue skies, happy days are here again, smiling at me, the skies above are clear again, nothing but blue skies, let us sing a song of cheer again, do I see happy days are here again? Bluebird, all together, shout it now, sing it, a song, let us tell the world about it now, nothing but blue sky, there is no one who can doubt it now, from now, happy days. That was Pettiford and Childs performing Blue Skies, and that was the theme music for Tom Porter during a morning show on WPFW Pacifica Radio in the 1990s. Cincinnati native Tom Porter was a member of CORE and SNCC and is a former director of the Antioch Graduate School of Education and executive director of the MLK Junior Center for Social Change. Uh, He was dean of African American Studies at Ohio University, 
and also uh, interim GM and program director at WPFW, where he hosted Morning Conversations. In this beginning of our talk, held at his home in Northwest D.C. yesterday, Porter discussed the early years of his involvement in the Black Power movement. I was initially a member of CORE. In 1964, Roy Ennis and probably Floyd McKissick and some other people at the CORE convention in Kansas City, 1964. They, um, they purged all of the leftists out of essentially out of core. Really? Uh, yeah, Julius Hobson from D.C. You, you have to realize that the earlier, the early people involved in the civil rights movement, the people who advised the younger people, whether it was Ella Baker, Jack O'Dell, uh, most of these people were on the left. Some had even been members of the Communist Party. And so... When they came into court and um, purged everybody, a lot of core chapters in the North said, well, we don't we want to be bothered with this. So we became affiliates of SNCC. And that was the time that um, Stokely Carmichael was chair of SNCC and then Rap Brown. And so we became affiliated with SNCC but really still the people who were in court in Cincinnati. That happened in a lot of places, hmm. uh, including maybe in Baltimore as well. So I knew a lot of the SNCC people who had gone to Howard, Charlie Cobb, Stokely Carmichael. Uh, by then, Stokely was then somewhere else in terms of Africa. So when we came here, uh, it was around 1970, and Antioch had a graduate school of education, and it was a teacher training program offered a master's degree. And I came here to run that program. I had been a student at Antioch. And so we knew all of these people, but they were, many of these people, and I don't want to name their names, but they became, in terms of the international struggle in Africa, they ended up supporting Jonas Savimbi and Holden Roberto, which was weird because the Cubans were in South Africa and Southern Africa fighting with the revolutionary forces, and these people were fighting them. Wow. So you, you had this, this whole kind of thing. But the struggle around the schools, which was a national struggle at that point, just wasn't in D.C. I mean, there was an organization headed by Preston Wilcox, out of New York called the Association of African American Educators. Mm -hmm. and, and I actually belong to it, and a lot of black people in education. And there was a fight around the community control, uh, the control of the schools in Brooklyn, Ocean Hill, Brownsville. That was a struggle. There was a struggle in Boston, Roxbury, mm -hmm. and they took over school. And there were two schools here in D.C., Adams and Morgan School. And at the same time, D.C. was getting a got-home rule. D.C. had just experienced a struggle in the streets it's called the riots. And there was this organization headed by this guy called Catfish Mayfield, who Barry and his then-wife, Mary Treadwell, ended up taking over in some kind of way. And I uh, used to be actually on 16th and um, 16th and uh, you. Big building on the corner, and 
Barry came here, got elected to the school board, then mm-hmm. became head of the school board, and then I guess there was some kind of tacit agreement that Walter Washington should be the first mayor since he's been he'd been the mayor before home rule, and so he was. So what was happening at those two schools before? Just the, regular schools. Okay, and so why why was there a need to take them over? What what was well, it wasn't so much a. Uh, well, that that Julius Hobson, who was from D.C., and he was on the um, he headed the statehood party, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and that was his push that the, the that that the parents and the people in the community should control schools, and so uh, Adams and Morgan schools were two of those school schools that had a community board and what have you, and our role was to train the teachers at the master's degree level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to realize that the people who were training these teachers were Bob Rhodes, Jack Hotel. I mean, they were were all socialists and some communists. A lot of our, you know, but their people had deep roots in the movement going way back. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, when you run into students who went to that center, you'll be amazed. I mean, they're like doctors and lawyers now, but, (laughs) I mean, people swear by what what they call the center. That's Mm -hmm. what we call it. And so... That created a problem because the ex-SNCC people, and I don't want to go too far with this, the ex-SNCC people, were many of them were fellows at the Institute for Policy Studies. Mark Raskin, who was head of the Institute for Policy Studies, who was also on the board of, board of directors at Antioch College, wondering how these Negroes got up here who, who he didn't know. Because mm-hmm. we were all out of, like, Bob Rhodes was out of Ohio. Jack O'Dell was initially out of Detroit, but he was the man that Jigger who would call the most dangerous man in America who was around Martin. And we had people like Julian Bond's father coming through as Harsh Man, coming through his lectures. We mean, it was, it was serious, serious stuff. And so, and plus, we, we, were given, we were given out master's degrees. So at one point... We were tremendously influenced in the D.C. school system. A lot of their students were students, and a lot of teachers were students in our program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of them went on to become assistant principals and principals in the D.C. school system. So that's where the struggle was in D.C. at that point. Now, we didn't come here to be involved in that struggle. We came here really to just simply run this graduate center and to really train people in what we thought people should know. So, but that's what was going on there in D.C. And, of course, Marion became the mayor. And everybody will tell you that Marion is the best mayor that D.C.'s had. That's true. But I think also they needed a mayor at that time who could control the streets. That was a big fear they had. And, and Barry had this reputation, even though he was from Mississippi, being a street dude. So, mm-hmm. so he was a perfect fit. And he walked that line very, very good and did, you know, I mean, I don't take anything away from him. I think he, when you look at the mayors in D.C., he was the best out of a lot that they've had. So that's what the struggle was. Now, when we came here, we were all involved in struggle in some way. I mean, Jack O'Dell was was with Sane Freeze. I mean, he was probably one of the most significant international players in his generation. Mm-hmm. And I mean he's I mean I can say this that he's responsible for my being able to travel around the world and meet a lot of people, including mm-hmm. my first trip to Cuba. 
So we considered ourselves socialists. We considered ourselves Marxists. And some of us considered ourselves communists. So, and we didn't make no bones about that. And I still don't make any bones about that, you know. I mean, when I look at the people who I consider my heroes, like Emil Cabral, Eduardo Manlani, Samora Michelle, Ho Chi Minh, you know, Chris Honey, Steve Biko, Fela's mother. I mean, so many people, people I knew. In fact, when I worked at Antioch College, I'm not Antioch, after that I went to OU. And uh, the person whose place I took Ohio. was... Ohio. Ohio University in Athens. Yeah. The person whose place I took was Lindy Way Mombasa, who became an ambassador uh, independent South Africa. She was teaching there. So we were always what we were. Right. You know, and we didn't make any bones about that. So I guess I would say that the form that, you know, Black Power was a slogan when Willie Rick said it, but it was a change in the focus of the movement. You know, and it's something I've been building for a while. I mean, SNCC was always kind of rambunctious, but so was Corner's heyday. I mean, they were always pushing the envelope, you know. Mm-hmm. And it changed the focus. Uh, Jim Foreman, uh, who was person with making of a black revolutionary, he was very instrumental, I think, in introducing international literature and thought into SNCC. Uh, not enough credit is given Jim, mm-hmm. but I mean, he was the one who, who told me about Fanon, told me about a lot of things. So that kind of the internationalization of the movement, I think, SNCC came out and supported the Palestinians in the in 1967. Mm-hmm. And and what the Six Day War or something like that. So it was always moving in that direction. At the same time, in the northern cities, like in your hometown, Philly, and Detroit, New York, Chicago, there was rumblings, you know. So that's why you had these rebellions that took out, you know, that that, that happened, mm-hmm. that that took off because uh, there was always this dynamic between some northerners that the civil rights movement was not militant enough. I mean, I can remember people telling me that uh, when you guys decide to pick up some guns and fight Whitey, we'd be ready, of course. When we picked up the gun, they hid. So (laughs) that never happened. And so the fight around the control of the schools, the fight around police brutality was always there. Almost every rebellion started as a result of police doing something that they'd been doing all along. The communities just said, oh, hell no. We ain't going along with that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that stuff began to happen. Uh, in the meanwhile, there were a lot of meetings that were taking place around Black Power. There were meetings in Detroit. Those those predated the Black Power conventions. So all of that was happening. That was all part of the mix. So, and D.C. was part of that. D.C. being the nation's capital and a focal point for a lot of stuff. You're going to do a national march, you're going to do it in D.C. Right. So you had African Liberation Day. ALSD, I think it was called, but it brought people from all over the country. I and mean, that, where was that held over here? Uh, no, down the, that was later. The, over here in Malcolm X Park, no, early down on the monument grounds. Oh, these were national, big national days, and they involved a lot of people around the country who were at that time really revolutionary. Um, Abdullah Kalimat, and I'm trying to think, and there were these different forma- formations. Abdullah Kalimat who still, he's retired as a uh, 
uh, professor at University of Illinois Champaign Urbana. Mm-hmm. There were all of these forces around the country mm-hmm. that were all moving in the same direction and all growing and de- all growing and developing at the same time, moving away from a narrow kind of nationalism. Uh, and there were people were writing then, you know, the Boggs, uh, uh, James and Grace Boggs out of Detroit. So there was a lot of ferment in the, in, in, in the movement. And the Black Power Movement was a movement that involved not just SNCC and CORE and SCLC, but it involved the entire black community. So there were things that you saw in every almost every community. It was a black bookstore, right. a black theater group, you know, musicians setting up their own stuff. This was happening all over the country. And so D.C. was a part of that. You know, D.C. had the new school for African-American thought, headed by Gaston Neal. It had the D.C. black rep, the old D.C. black rep. So it had most of the stuff that you see out here today are just derivatives, not very good derivatives of what was really going on. So the problem was they did not want to be as, although they hold Robeson up, they hold Du Bois up, they hold King up, they hold all of them up. But they're not going to go near them ideologically. And so that's why I say they're pale compared to what was here before, even in those early days of D.C. Why don't you go into more depth about that in terms of the ideology of Robeson, Du Bois, King, and, and what's not being held up now, 50 years later? Well, first of all, the black community is very anti-socialist, very anti Marxist, very anti where the rest of the world is going. And um, that's been a problem for a very, very long time. It wasn't unusual for D.C., people in D.C., their criticism of Marxism was that every Marxist they knew had a white woman. But they never bring up that Diop had one, too. (laughs) I mean, you know, so it's this level of confusion. But you can't, it's not an analysis to analyze who somebody's married to. That's not a progressive analysis, whoever they're married to. And so having reacted to that, whatever they set up was basically set up, in my mind, on very narrow nationalist grounds. Now, most people don't have the courage. You know, you're in one place, you're pretending to be one thing. You're in another place, you're pretending to be something else. I think you have to have the courage to say, what you really believe in. And I think that if you don't have to agree with, you don't have to agree with anything that Karl Marx said, but I think if you're not familiar with his theories, then you're uneducated. But I also think that if you're not familiar with with Cabral's return to the source, then something's lacking in your education. If you haven't read Nkrumah, or you haven't studied Fela, we got to read Fela's stuff, and read Fela's mother and their struggle. You know, it's more than just a jumping up and down and a beating, shaking your rump, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that's one of the real problems that happen in our community. And some of that even happened under the Barry administration, not coming from Barry. But the fact of it is, the black community for a very, very long, it's a very conservative community. Dr. King wasn't. It's just always interesting do you mean when you say the community? Are you talking particularly about D.C.? Uh, I'm saying that's that's been generally true, true of 
the established black political order. That coming out of the Gary Convention was a new sense of politics, but that sense of politics that we should elect a group of people like we have now. I mean, people say, people fought and died for the right to vote. I didn't fight for the right to vote. I fought for the right to vote for something. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. Nobody's talking about we, we were past that in our understanding that, you know, that we were dealing with a capitalist system. And Dr. King, who was considered to be a conservative, was very clear about that. He's very clear about anti-communism, too, in a speech honoring Dr. Du Bois. He said, our, our blind anti, talking about the United States, blind anti-communism has led us into one quagmire after another. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he was very, very clear, but he was also very, very clear that he wasn't a Marxist. He was a Baptist, Baptist preacher. One of the speeches he said, this is where I leave Brother Marx and go on to the kingdom. I mean, I was clear. But you can't be an educated person in this world if you're not educated in the literature of the world. And so when you talk about the internationalization of the movement, it wasn't that we were just interested in Africa or African people. But the Bandung Conference was not just about African people. It was about Asia, Africa, Latin America. Another speech, Dr. King said that black people will never be free until a long night of imperialism is lifted from Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And now here we have 2016 people who are saying that they don't want to unite with anybody. Saying that, oh, you have a lot of black people saying that. That you know, they don't want to, you know, ain't messing with no Latinos, they ain't messing with no. Sure. Well, I mean, I have, a, I, have a, I have a letter from Cesar, Cesar Chavez thanking me for supporting his people here in DC. I mean, we openly talked about the domestic third world, you know, in that period. And so, I mean, Baraka was one of the first groups to go to Cuba, you know, and so there's always one been this split. In, in our movement between those people who were Pan-Africanists. And if you, if you talk about Pan-Africanism, you can't escape talking about Du Bois, Pat Moore, and C.L.R. James, who are all socialists. Now, you might not like that, but it doesn't have a damn thing to do with the truth. I mean, and that's what this thing is all about, trying to understand the truth and the way for us to solve the problems that we have. So when you say split, what would be the other side of that split? The other side of the split were people who were reformists. Uh, Ron Walters really wanted to be the uh, authority on black politics. And, and people said, well, you can have that. It's beyond that. <laughs> you know, but uh, they really, and, and we have the same problem today. The real problem you have in trying to mount a struggle in the black community today is that black people don't know anything else other than this. And they're doing pretty good, those who are speaking out. And saying things are doing pretty good. I heard uh, this young brother coach on Charlie Rose's show the other night, and he was doing this analysis of Barack Obama. And it's got to be real mystical mm. <laughs> and ephemeral at one point about how his grandfather had, white grandfather taking him to a basketball game, and that was somewhere they went with that. It was like really weird. And all while I was listening to the interview, I was saying the real interview is the interview of 14 or 15-year-old black boy or black girl or Latino boy or girl who's living in hell and asked them what their take is on this. Mm-hmm. 
That's a real interview. You know, so I mean, but so that that's that's part of the split where you have a group of people whose view of Obama and his administration that we're not gonna ever have anybody that looked that good in the White House no more. And right. They, and you know and, and Michelle. Yeah, and their cute little children and all of that. And all of that is real. But look at the real condition of the community. Now, it's one thing to say that he's president of all of the people. It's another thing to say that black people got to eat that because I ain't got time for them. Mm. So so that, that split, you know, it's interesting. The, the road from the civil rights movement didn't lead to the election of Barack Obama. The road to Barack Obama, Obama came out of the Democratic Party and the left and a group of young people and young black people who wanted to see something new, you know. And as all politicians, you, he tapped into something, hope, mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of. But I was at the convention in Denver, the first convention, and I remember writing in my notes that this looks like and sounds like a cross between an Amway convention and a Billy Graham riot revival. I wrote that in my notes in 2008. Because I was watching them raising money every 20 minutes. They flashed the number up, and you had so much time to call. It was a big pageantry, big big pageant, you know. So, so that split, and the reason why I'm focusing on the split, because that determined the direction of not just black power, but the black community. Some people went left. Some people went right. You know, some people became international. Some people weren't. I'll tell you what happened in terms of African Liberation Day. You know how they shut it down? Because they quit allowing vendors in the park. The people weren't even coming for the day. When they started to march on the Israeli embassy, that was a small crowd of people. But people came from all over to sell their wares. Right. And so the park police shut it down. No more selling in the park. That ended it. That really represents kind of a split in the movement. You know, petty compradorism. <laughs> and a struggle for liberation. Hmm. They must have allowed vendors back because when I went to a few things in recent years, they had vendors there. Million Family March. Me yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 they stopped it on African Liberation Day, and I guess that you know, I mean, even at the various things that Farrakhan has had, there've been vendors. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact. Uh, a lot of people came here to vent, and I don't blame people, you know, if you see a gathering of black folks and you can sell t-shirts and what have you, uh, that's all good. I'm not putting that down. I'm simply saying that the dichotomy between the people who, they used to march on the Israeli embassy, who wanted to do that, and the people who wanted to sell things. Right. Yeah. So yeah. kind of like the, the political content of the was unimportant. Day. was unimportant. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to my conversation yesterday with Tom Porter. This is part four of the series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. And this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, more of the conversation. Stay with us.
people today in discussing Syria and the Russians, they think that the Russians kind of imposed themselves on Syria. Right. The Russians are allies with Syria, just like the they United were invited States. in. Yeah. Well, they they were allies in '84 when I went to Syria with Jesse Jackson. Casper Weinberger invited Jesse over to the Pentagon to do a debriefing on the trip, and I went with Jesse. And they had three questions. Colin Powell was in the room. Casper Weinberger, me, and Jesse Jackson. They had, they had three questions. Was Assad about to kick the Russians out? Could he be overthrown? And was he sick and about to die? I mean, so I'm saying in 1984, Russia and Syria were allies, just like the United States and Israel are allies. Right. And so this distorted view of just the real international scene. Right. Uh, Speaking of the international <coughs> scene, I wanted to talk about D.C.'s role in the international scene and, and the kind of the role of black power in that. So I know D.C. was central to the anti-apartheid struggle. And I'm wondering, what was the role of D.C. in making black power a movement that created links to other parts of the diaspora? I don't think it was really that significant. I mean, I think that there were people, there were other organizations around the country. And D.C. was a focal point. You should realize that a lot of people in D.C. were in SNCC. They were in the very administration. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of those people also were on the side of the reactionary forces of Jonas Savimbi and Holden Roberto in the struggle against the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but because D.C. being D.C. and these national movements uh, were here, and there were national organizations here, I mean, people who were in the uh, anti-apartheid movements, you know, Bill Lucy, who, who was Secretary of Treasury of Ashley, was also from Memphis. But his role was as a union leader. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so because D.C. was and is this country's capital, I was a focal point for like marches are coming here in January. But right. marches are coming here. Right. Marches don't start here. Okay. Okay. And, and, and to be very, very clear, that's not to say that because D.C. was the nation's capital, they had black labor leaders here, they had black people in Congress here, but they also had... National organizations like Sane Freeze, anti-nuclear organizations that were here. D.C. is the capital, and therefore it is headquarters for a lot of national and international organizations. Right. And, and that's the important thing to understand. There were people, like I say, there were significant players, former civil rights people who were the wrong side in the struggle against the Portuguese. Hmm. You know. We're just on the wrong side, and some of them have uh, fessed up to that. Well, you can't can't do nothing about it. You'll have nothing to fess up to when you got your butt whipped because mm -hmm. he was on the wrong side. And um, but but so I think D.C.'s role in struggle is because it's the nation's capital, right. just as it's the role in peace movements and all of that. People come here because it's quote the seat of power. Mm -hmm. But you don't see a lot. I mean, you look, the mayor just said she's not going to sign this family leave bill. You didn't see nobody calling for her to resign. They're calling for Angela Merkel to resign. They're mm -hmm. calling for Zuma to resign. You know, they're calling for this cat in Gambia to resign. But, you know, you know, D.C.'s like, 
Lead Belly said it best in 1941. He said, D.C. is a bourgeois town. I think you talked a little bit about ideological differences, but what role did that play in, in terms of what different activists wanted to achieve here? I think you, you talked a lot about, for example, just now the different positions people had on South Africa. <laughs> but uh, in terms of things domestically, what are some of the the ways that people went in different directions in terms of what they wanted? It was basically around content. I mean, everybody agreed that the um, the University of District University of the District University or federal cities it was called. Everybody thought that was a good thing. But it was the content, what should be taught, who should be hired. That's where it broke down at, who would be the president. History of terrible presidents, but these presidents were tied into historic movements. And so they got jobs. A lot of, a lot of jobs that people got and positions people got, they were positioned coming out of the Civil Rights Movement, either by nature of the middle classness of their families, <laughs> but they were they were they were positioned, right. you know, uh, and so I mean without naming names, they still head organizations. They still are asked to speak, although they haven't done anything in years. But they still, you know, and uh, and so there were other people who say, hey, you know, that uh, coming out of King and Malcolm, that we've got to, black people should get together, African people should unite. But these are the issues that we should unite around, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a split was over was over content, you know, getting back to going all the way back to, uh, you know, Du Bois, Patmore, and those guys. So th- that's always been here and it's still here today. And unless unless the black community, I don't think it can be resolved. But I think that today it's very very clear that the world is moving and world is moving in one way, and we got to decide what we're gonna do about that. And when you say moving in one way, why don't you be more specific? Well, I think you take you take the example of China. I remember when China started dealing with Africa, and you had all this criticism of the Chinese. The Chinese are doing this, the Chinese are doing that. They ain't no different than so and so and so and so. Where's the difference between the way China deals with Africa and the way the West deals with Africa? There is a difference. China and the new international organizations, the BRIC organizations, the ASEAN organizations, the one road, all of that is changing the world. I mean, you got South Africa, Brazil, India, Russia, and China. I mean, you got Russia, Iran, and Turkey meeting in Moscow without the United States on the future of Syria. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in Africa, not at the leadership level, but there's a lot of rumblings among young people. You know, I, I wasn't thinking about this when I wanted to interview you about black power, but you were talking about one thing leading to another in terms of, you know, what what actually brought about Barack Obama, that he did not come out of the black power struggle, that no. he, he's not the natural end to that, right? How about looking at this year in terms, of, it seems like this year is when neoliberalism was unmasked. Right. And that, you know, I'm wondering if one strand of what started in the 60s really kind of fed into neoliberalism. Oh, to the, de- yeah. to the degree that the black movement, for the most part, went 
head on into the Democratic Party. Right. Uh, and to that degree that you have, for instance, Bernie Sanders is in the race. The race has just started. An entire black caucus, without having one meeting with black people, endorsed Hillary Clinton. You know, when they came out with that statement, it was actually the black caucus, the lobbying arm of it. Right. And so a lot of the people in the black caucus didn't even know that that was being done. And I think it was also the first time that a lot of people knew that there was this lobbying arm of the right. black caucus that right. was not just composed of these elected officials, but, but corporate lobbyists. So I'm not saying that for real, most of the black uh, elected officials were actually in her pocket, but they didn't agree to come out with that statement at yeah, that time. They were not in her pocket. They were in the pockets of the same people whose pockets she was in. Right. They all get their money. You know, having run for Congress before, you know, that's that's where they control everything is through the money. But then Donna Edwards runs, uh, you know, a black woman, a progressive black woman, and they did the same thing. They endorsed Chris Van Hollen. And, but in doing that, they basically sealed their fate in the black community. Because people said, oh, you know, Whatever we think about this cat Bernie Sanders, he's on the right road. Mm -hmm. He's on the right road. And so I think you're right. Up until this election, well, even the first Obama election, you could see it breaking up. Because remember, he ran against Hillary Clinton in the primary. And Hillary Clinton ran a similar campaign as, as uh, Donald Trump ran against her. Right. Yeah, you know. And and it was split. Black labor was with Barack Obama. White labor was with Hillary Clinton. And that's the way it went. And, of course, in 2012, Barack still had his coalition, but he could not deliver his coalition to Hillary Clinton. Because you can go back in 2008, and there's a Financial Times article, it admonishes Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton to get out of the race. And it says to them that you risk damaging your reputation forever. It's a hell of an editorial in the Financial Times, which is a paper record of the ruling class of the world. So they're saying to them, and so by the time, but they still wanted to push her, that group uh, of people, I mean, if, around Bill and Hillary Clinton, and Bill... Bill's strategy was the Southern strategy. The Southern Governors Conference was his power base. They were all Southern governors. And the reason why the Republicans didn't like him is he, he took their agenda, which was a new social contract with America. I had a document upstairs that he put out, and the Republicans never forgave him for that. And yeah. so, so, but that neoliberalism in this country, that it, it, it had been falling in Europe. Now, of course, one side of that is you got the rise of right-wing groups, uh, in Europe, but you also have the strengthening of progressive organizations in Europe as well, mm -hmm. and uh, and the banishing of people like Alain of France, you know, who's milk toast. I mean, so as they say on the left, the uh, contradictions are maturing, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And so this election, you have populism on the left and populism on the right, right. And the Democratic Party who used an old playbook because they were trying to force Hillary Clinton 
down people's throat, and she was never going to get elected. And and the polls are showing that that Sanders could beat both of them, and yet many of my friends on the left, and I've amonished them. You all were in Philadelphia, and you didn't stand up for Bernie, and then you tried to sell to us that if Hillary, if we don't stick with Hillary, then what? If we don't stick with Hillary, most of the progressives in Europe were hoping that she didn't get elected. Okay. It's simply because of her stance on militarism and war. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think we've seen the end of neoliberalism. The, you know, the issue is, you know, what's going to come. Well, it, it almost seems like the neoliberalism has been a midwife to something far more right-wing. Oh, no question. In our Palm Dutch books, Fascism and Social Revolution, he says that social, social democracy is a disguised form of fascism. Mm -hmm. And so we see on the neoliberal politics, we see the overthrow of Rusa and Brazil. We see the undermining under the guise of human rights violations of, of, of governments in the Middle East and governments around the world. I mean, and these are a lot of the same governments and a lot of the same... Uh, movements that the Black Power movement was trying to lift up and make right. make links with. Right. So I mean, that's how you know that Barack Obama's presidency was not an outgrowth of that because it was, if anything, almost hostile. <laughs> Listen, Dr. King said America was the greatest purveyor of violence on 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 the planet. Barack Obama's created a lot of violence in his in, in his administration. I mean, he's got Libya on his hand. He's got Syria on his hand. Yemen now. Yeah, Yemen also. now. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so he got a lot of stuff that he needs to deal with and trying to. And, you know, as a president, I mean, I understand that, you know, he was following orders, not giving them out. So especially as an African-American president. A lot of people don't realize that. I mean, when you say that, what, what do you mean when you say that he's following orders? I'm saying that the president is not the... The chairman of the board, he's a, he's the a chief executive officer. So there's something above him. And the military-industrial complex has always been uh, larger than the government. The international financial seg sector in the world today, which is 20 times larger than the gross national product of the world. So, I mean, you know, that's the reason people say that... Uh, Wells Fargo to hit, should be in jail, all this, well, you know. But with all of that, no, none of the bankers have gone to jail because it's it's like the guy said in The Godfather, the Meyer Lansky character. He says we're bigger, we're bigger than General Motors. We got a friendly, friendly government. Hmm. It's what we always wanted, and so then caught between the racism of not just the Republicans, but racist in his own party, right. caught between them and a press which started off as they always do. It's interesting to watch uh, Chris Matthews and Charlie Rose and all of these guys. I mean, it's almost like they're doing with, with Tallahassee Coach, is that his name? Uh, he's a new flavor, you know, so he's sitting up there, you know, waxing, in, waxing eloquently about stuff that he really doesn't know anything about. And... Uh, and they're looking uh, because they got to have somebody because Barack Obama's off the scene. And they all are glad. They all are in lockstep when they say he was weak. 
he didn't make the right decisions at all. I mean, and probably there's going to be a number of books that come out by people who were on his staff in his administration criticizing him. So I hope he writes books and really tells the truth that uh, Hillary Clinton ran away with the State Department. She made decisions that he didn't like. He's the kind of guy that likes to keep harmony, hmm. you know, and they knew that. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the Clintons are just low down. <laughs> I mean, the Clintons are just a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> so you talk about Syria, and obviously the media is playing a big role in what people here know and understand. Now, I also know that in this time period... Uh, you were a general manager at WPFW. Yeah, at one time I was acting general manager, but acting. I was program director for about three or four years. Program director. And so you were here when the station started, and I wanted you to talk about what you feel was the role that WPFW was supposed to play in empowering African Americans in the city. And... Um, you know, what has been a kind of snapshot of its ability to do that, to play that role, and and how is it fulfilling that role now? Oh, well, let's start at the beginning. WPFW probably would not have come on the air in a way that it did if Howard University, which was the dominant radio station in D.C. with this 360 degrees of black music, that Howard University was the joint. As they say, I mean, it was, you kept it on. I mean, it had the best black news. It had the best black music. It had the best black everything. And it was the most popular, most influential station in D.C. They changed their format. And so WPFW walked right into a ready-made format when it came on the air. And so the music was, you know, 360 degrees of black music. And the news was coming out of Pacifica. It was very, very... Very, very progressive. One of the problems with WPFW is that the leaders of WPFW, including the leadership when I was there, never understood that WPFW was the most powerful station in the network. They never could understand that. They never could understand that there's no radio station on this planet where black people have the ability to say and do what they want 24-7. Not in Africa, not anywhere. Mm. Now, and that's still true today. Really? Yeah. So not in, say, South Africa or not no, in Ghana no, 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 or not no, no, in Nigeria? No. So all, the government influences all that. South Africa is probably a little bit better, but for the most part, you're not going to criticize them. You're not going to have a Gerald Horn on a regular basis. You're not going to have that. You're not going to have that. But the leadership, not only has never understood that, most of the leadership didn't want to understand that. WPFW, in the early days of WPFW, most of the people who won the air, uh, had established careers, whether they were artists, whatever they were. So they didn't need WPFW for money. Hmm. And then, of course, Pacifica has always, in my mind, uh, been concerned about WPFW because here you have a station in the nation's capital and you had to agree that it would have black leadership and this music would be jazz music because given the time... Which in seventy six somewhere seventy seven. Given that time, you couldn't have come any other way in DC with WHUR having been, you know, the banner. So they had to agree to that. But it's like black studies on white campus. They agreed to them, but the next day that they made the agreement, they started trying to undermine them. Uh, 
WPFW is still in a good position because it's in the nation's capital. The question has always been leadership, though. You know, Coltrane has an album and a tune called Selflessness. Pacifica and WPFW, and even in the early days of WHR, was built on that principle. The Civil Rights Movement was built on that principle of selflessness. And if you can't embrace that, then you're in the wrong place. I mean, I got a son-in-law who DJs somewhere. He likes to make cracks at me that he's getting paid, which is the crack that you didn't get paid for doing that. And it's only because he's getting paid for doing nothing that that he's doing something. That's because he can't. He doesn't understand the concept of selflessness, and to the degree that he doesn't understand it, I fear for my grandchildren. <laughs> and I hope he's listening to this. So that original mission. I mean, I think it was very much tied to. Empowering the community, giving right. the community a voice. Right. And. Which was uh, an extension of Black Power. WPFW, and I said this out loud, should have been a model for what black radio should be wherever. I mean, you know, because they did, you know, whether it's Africa, they did music from around the world, they did news from around the world. Were there any other things that related to, you know, 50 years of black power in D.C. that you think we didn't cover? Uh, the only thing is that Donald Trump has presented a problematic, but it's also a good one. Because D.C., in particular the black community, slept through eight years of Barack Obama. You hear people now say more and more, stay woke. <laughs> Turn on Facebook, people saying stay, because it's frightening everybody, because there's no hiding place. WPFW should be in the thick of this. There's a, a lot of stuff that's going on, and WPFW should be at the center of that, and black people in D.C. should be setting the pace because they are in the nation's capital. That was the voice of WPFW's own Tom Porter, Cincinnati native, educator, activist, entrepreneur. He had this note at the bottom of his bio. I don't know if this is part of the bio or part of his signature, but it reads, In these trying times, as my mama used to say, we better get with ourselves before we are by ourselves. Blessings and seasons greetings. And I'll leave him to have the last word today on today's show. That will do it for us on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Thanks again to my guest, Tom Porter. A special thanks to Chantel James and Michael Byfield for their contributions to the show. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can now listen to all of our shows and past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Averam. Raise your voice out there. Peace. Thank <laughs> you.